0: your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, where we're looking at, uh, it's a central doctrine in in the Christian church, but it's also a very practical understanding. We're looking at sanctification, what it is to be holy, interesting, just the word itself, uh, the Latin word for the word holy is sanctus. That's where we get sanctification. And so when we talk about somebody being sanctified, because we are being sanctified, we have been and we will be and continue to be sanctified, that we're being holified. We're being made holy. Now last week we looked at the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification means simply to be declared righteous, that you are righteous because you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You're immersed in his righteousness. And that happens at the moment of our conversion, the moment of our salvation, and it's a done deal. Our position in the eyes of God is we are righteous. He looks upon me, he looks upon you, if you know the Lord Jesus, as being righteous. Sanctification is also, uh, it's an act of God's grace, as is justification. Uh, And as we've been looking at justification, sanctification is also a past tense deal. You have been sanctified. You have been declared holy. When God looks upon you, when he looks upon me, he looks upon us as holy. He does not see us in our sin. Now, both are our permanent position in Christ, and they come by grace through faith. We we understand that. These are grace gifts. They are not things that we deserve or that we somehow earn. And I've talked about if you run that out to a logical end, if you take that view, you're essentially saying the cross wasn't enough. Not good. But they come by simply believing, by trusting in the finished work of Jesus at the cross. Now, there's a difference between justification and sanctification, you can't become more justified. You you have been given infinite righteousness. You have got inexhaustible grace resting on your life. You, by the grace of God, are righteous. You're not getting more righteous. It's a done deal. That's our position. It's a positional thing. However, with sanctification, yes, positionally, you have been sanctified However, the difference there is that we are now being sanctified. There's two parts to sanctification. There's positional, and then there's the oh-so-practical aspect of that. Uh, We are being made holy. And God is conforming us, as we see in Romans uh, 8.29. He's conforming us to the image of His Son. And that's a work in progress. We know that all of us are a work in progress. We're going to be talking about that work this morning. So, Paul begins chapter six by outlining the positional the positional aspect of sanctification, why it is that our old life is incompatible with the new life that we have in Christ. <laughs> we looked at that last week, because we're and we're breaking into an ongoing statement by Paul here as we start and we look at verses twelve through fourteen this morning. We're only going to cover three verses, uh, but I'm going to go back and we're going to start by reading through chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, actually 1 through 11, together. It's in understanding. I love the book of Romans, and I love Paul's writings. We're backing up, even though we're going to be in verses 12 through 14 this morning, we're going to back up, for context's sake, to to verses 1 through 11. But you also got to realize that if you back up to there, you really have to back up to the last verse in chapter 5. That's That's kind of how Paul is, because if you back up for contact, you can back up right to chapter 1, verse 1. We're not going to do that. However, in chapter 5, verse 21, Paul lays out two principles. There are two reigns, if you want to look at it that way. Remember, we looked at a reign, it's like, it's a kingly term, and it's talking about the dominion that one is under. In verse 21, he says, Uh, Of chapter 5, he says, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see the first principle is that sin reigned in death. The second, grace reigns in righteousness to eternal life. That's the contrast. Those are the two principles that he's dealing with here, and he deals with them more as we go along. So, it's to this statement that Paul asks the question in chapter 6, verse 1. Well, so what should we do? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? But then he elaborates all the way through verse 11 on that. And he concludes it where we're going to start this morning with a therefore. In other words, therefore, referring back to what has just been said. He's going to say therefore, and then he's going to give us very practical instruction on the practical side, the practical aspects of sanctification, of being made holy, of being conformed to the image of his Son, of being in that process. Because it's a position, sanctification is a position, but it's also a process. We're in the process of being sanctified. So chapter 6, verse 1, I'll read through the, the first 11 verses here. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Remember, we looked at that. May it never be. God forbid, What are you nuts? (laughs) The whole deal. That was mine. But uh, he says, certainly not. A very emphatic statement. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There's the principle verse 5, for if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. And verse 6 is very important. He talks about the body of sin. We're going to look at that extensively this morning. He says in verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11 again, he shifts gears in verse 11, and he begins to make it practical. He's talked about, doctrinally, our understanding of what this sanctification thing is, and then he begins to apply it in verse 11. He says, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We looked last week at the word reckon. It means to accept it as a fact. It's an accounting term. It's essentially saying that when you go to do the books, doesn't matter if you have red ink or black ink, the bottom line is the bottom line. And what he's saying here is the bottom line is you have been sanctified. Reckon that to be so. Reckon that to be a done deal, a settled thing in your life. You've been immersed in Christ. You're dead to sin and alive to God. So what does he say, reckon? Primarily because these things that we're looking at are truth. And truth must be applied for it to have any real value in our lives. We can, we can come week after week, folks. And we can hear God's word. We can study God's word at home. We can immerse ourselves in the word of God. But unless we come to that critical point of saying, I now will apply God's word to my life, we're just getting book smart. We can be really, really, I used to go to the prison (laughs) and I would see guys, I would deal with guys that they had nothing but time on their hands. These guys could, they could cite the Bible backwards. They knew what it said, but they had little idea of what it meant. That's the part where we begin now to apply God's word to our lives. And as we do, we gain not only understanding in our minds, and our knowers, but that message sinks now to our hearts and we begin to live out the things that we're studying. That's God's will for every one of us. That's why he says, reckon these things to be so. In John 13, 17, Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Apply them to your life. He's saying to put these things into practice. It's like anything. Being a Christian, it's like a lot of, I mean, yes, we have the Holy Spirit to empower us. I don't want to minimize that at all, because he is there in the life of every believer, empowering us to a life that really is a response to the grace that we've been shown. But we have to practice it. Uh, I've heard my daughter spent a long time in the hospital, and and I learned that, that with doctors, very often they they call it they're practicing medicine for a reason. They're they're doing the best they can to interpret very complicated circumstances. So Paul now gives some very practical application on how to live the sanctified life. He begins in verse twelve with, as I mentioned, the word therefore. And we learned from verses 1 to 10, last week we looked at three things that we learned. I'll I'll briefly review them here. From verse 1, uh, essentially we learned that continuing in sin is not what Christianity is about. It's it's just, it it doesn't work. That's the God forbid, that may it never be. In verses 3 through 5, because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we've learned that we have died to sin. Positionally, God sees us as dead to sin. So essentially, he's saying this is what Christianity is. He's provided us with the power to live a different kind of life. Uh, I mentioned Mr. Shattuck last week, uh, my parents' friend that they used to hang out at at the cocktail lounge with. And And that he was like just going along and just boozing and carrying on and not getting along with people and all that. Then all of a sudden this guy was just changed. It was the first time in my life, I was 12 years old, 11, 12 years old, first time in my life I had been exposed to the radical transforming power of the gospel. Because that's what it is. So in verses 6 to 10 he tells us, how this has come to be so. He's saying essentially that the nature of Adam, our old sin nature, has been rendered inoperative. And you go, well, wait a minute. It's not so inoperative with me. I know what I said to my wife this morning, my husband this morning. We're going to get to that. He's saying, in understanding these things, essentially, this is how you put them into practice you apply them to your life. And we're going to talk about how we apply them for the balance of our time together. And read through verses 12 through 14, and then we'll come back and we'll unpack them a bit. He says, therefore, based on everything I've just said, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Next week, we'll talk about the relationship with the law to these people that he's writing to and to us as well. Because the two things they said was, well, can we continue to sin? That grace could abound in verse 1. In verse 15, he's essentially saying, look, because you're not under law, if you're a Gentile, you weren't under the law of Moses. And people were wondering, well, if I'm not under the law, then it doesn't matter. I'm not breaking anything if there's not a posted law. Well, we've talked about that before when we talked about speed limit signs. The answer is not take down the speed limit sign. <laughs> Things are going to be crazy if you do that. It's the same thing here. And we'll look at that next week. But what he's talking about when he says sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under law but under grace, this is practical Sanctification. Now, a couple of points need to be need to be made here, and and I want to unpack this because there's some false doctrine out there connected to this. We're not going to go down the road that the Gnostics did in the old or in the the New Testament early church and all that. There was a lot of false teaching that stemmed from Gnosticism. There's still teaching out there today that is sort of a derivative of that. Uh, some of the cultic organizations adhere to it. And it's where you say, well, um, my spirit is good and my body is bad. The spiritual realm is good. The natural realm is evil. And, and while we understand <laughs> that there is no good thing about us outside of Christ. So I, I want to I just get that heresy out of the way as we get into this. Because we are going to talk about the difference between the spiritual man and the body of sin that he talks about in verse 6. Essentially, practical practical sanctification stems from the fact that you are saved, but your body is not. Before you throw eggs at me or anything like that, let me explain this. In verse 6, he explains that Our old man is having been crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be done away with. That's positional. He sees me as holy. You now have a new nature. And practically speaking, as long as you live in this body, you will still have to contend with the old nature, the body of sin. That's something that all of us deal with. (laughs) You're more than your body. You guys know that. I mean, uh, I can tell my body what to do. I can get feedback from my body, but that's not the real me. Uh, As we get older, we realize that our bodies tell us stuff as well. (laughs) Mine told me some things when I got out of bed this morning. Like, ow. It's because we're subject to sin and death. This body is subject to sin and death. Period. Our bodies eventually age. And they die. So the question then becomes is when my body dies, do I die? Of course not. We know that. No, I am different than my body. And, and we're going to look at, I've got a, a chart that I made. I was going to put it into today's message, but I ended up deleting it back out because I've got a lot of ground to cover. But a chart that I've made that talks about the natural man and the spiritual man, the, the regenerated man, the, the man that is dominated by the body, And the man that is dominated by the Spirit. And and, and I'll show you graphically what that looks like. One day, we'll get a new body. Paul talks about that extensively in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at that some this morning. But we know that we'll have a body that is just like the body that Jesus got in the resurrection. That We will have a glorified body. We will have a body that's not fitted for this earth, which is decaying, but it's fitted for heaven. It's fitted for the heavenly realm. Uh, Pastor Chuck used to say, I can't wait to take the universal tour with my new body. And he wasn't talking about a movie studio. Point is, we will get a new body. We will inhabit when we throw off this body of flesh, this body of corruption is what it's called, that we will get a glorified body. So think about it like this. You've been born again if you put your your trust in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a new creation. The Bible says old things have passed away and that that's not the real you anymore. And that's true. But you're still in this body. And this body is called the body of sin. It's connected to this world, and it's very familiar and in tune with all of the sinful habits that you had before. I heard a laugh. <laughs> so on one side, you're excited. Something wonderful has happened to me. I've got a new life. This is awesome. I love what God is doing in my life, and I'm not trying to produce it. It's just happening as I cooperate with the work of His Spirit. And I'm not the same as I used to be. On the other hand, you think, why do I still have this temptation? Why does this lust for fill in the blank still come up? Why do I harbor bitterness when I know that God wants me to let go of that? Why do I hold a grudge? Why do I, why do I, why do I? And all of us are in that place. I know that I'm changed because I never used to hate temptation. I used to look for it. I used to live for temptation. And I remember before I came to the Lord, it was like, that was no big deal. That's just a manner of life. Now I hate the fact that I'm tempted. And folks, I'll tell you what, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you grow a hatred for temptation. You grow a hatred for sin. And if you're not in that place, you need to check it out. So Paul introduces these truths in Romans 6. And when we get to chapter 7, he's going to thoroughly unwrap them. And we're going to get into this more. Uh, He's going to really elaborate on the old man versus the new man. Not doing the things I want to do and doing the things I don't want to do and so on. But to sum up, positionally, I've been sanctified. My sin was permanently dealt with at the cross. Practically, I am being sanctified. You see how that fits? Positionally, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, uh, Paul says, we have been seated in the heavenlies. I don't know about you, but when I heard those sirens going by a few minutes ago, I, I am not seated in the heavenlies. We are still subject to all kinds of things here. By the way, when I hear several sirens like that, I was back in the kitchen praying and just started to pray for whatever's going on. Somebody's in distress. So positionally, I've been seated in the heavenlies, but practically I'm living in this body. Romans 8.20 says that this earth, the earth itself is subjected to futility. I live on a fallen world in a fallen body. And both are subjected to sin. It's part of the fall. It's part of what happened in the garden. And, and we get to inherit it. And yet there's been a break from the old life. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. That's a wonderful promise. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, speaking of the resurrection, he elaborates on that more. Uh, in verse 15, verses 42 to 43, he says his body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. How's that for a promise? Dropping down in 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 50, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, this body is fitted for this earth, and it is not going to heaven. (laughs) It's going to decay. He's saying, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He's talking now about the rapture. That that he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. We know that in Thessalonians that Paul talks about this extensively and he talks about that, that last trumpet where the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will will rise up and meet with him in the air. At that moment, in that instant, we will put off this body of sin. And whether we die a natural death here and the rapture hasn't taken place, or whether we go to meet with the Lord in the air, there is an end to this corruption. And boy, am I glad because gravity has taken hold. He says in verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15, for this corruption must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Wonderful, wonderful. This is a great truth. This is a powerful truth. If you're born again, you're washed in the blood. You are different. And you still have to contend with this body of sin. And that's not a place where we just say that. We we use these scriptures and we say, well, that's an excuse for me to sin. That's what he is saying you don't do in verse 1. What he's saying is this is a reality. It's a practical, it's a working reality in our lives that we are subject to this body of sin. What do we do with it? How do I apply these truths? How do I contend with sin? And the answer, this is where verses 12 to 14 come in. Verse 12, he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Very practical. He's instructing us to do something here. God's part, I have declared you holy. You are completely irrevocably holy in my eyes. Our part, cooperating with the work of his spirit. He's saying to choose something, to do something. Looking back at the two principles that we looked at in, in chapter 5, verse 21, sin reigning in death, grace reigning in righteousness and life, as well as the overarching principle that we see uh, in uh, chapter six, where, or at the end of chapter five, where sin abounds, grace superabounds all the more. You can't out sin the grace of God. He's essentially saying that it, it, that you will leave, if you leave sin unchecked, it will reign. That's the default of this body of sin that we live with, that we deal with. We it needs to be checked. We need to make choices. Because sin will turn our natural desires into inordinate lusts that control us and affect others in significant ways. You know, people think that their sin doesn't affect other people. Well, it's just something that I'm involved in. And I'll tell you what, after nearly 30 years of being a pastor, my response to that is hogwash. wash. Your sin does affect other people. Sometimes profoundly. Sometimes there are bodies littering the side of the road because of sin. Folks, it's never my little deal over here. Sin is a wrecking ball in people's lives. I want you to note something. Paul didn't say to reckon sin to be dead it is very much alive, if you hadn't noticed. He said, reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. That's the principle, is to realize that the real me, the redeemed me, that by God's grace, I no longer need to be controlled by sin. That doesn't have to be the dominating nature in my life. It is the lower nature that I still deal with, but again, I've been given a new nature. I don't need to be controlled by sin. I don't need to cave to sin. I don't need to cave to that temptation that comes at me maybe 50 times a day. But here's the sneer. Lust. So what he says. Don't be controlled by it. It's lusts. When we think of lust, we usually just think about lust in terms of sexual lust, sexual sin. And Jesus, it's, that's true. Jesus used that example in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember where he says, you know, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, that you're guilty of that act, even though you haven't physically committed it. That's true. But I'm going to give you a definition of sexual lust as well as a broader definition here. Because lust goes far beyond the physical or the sexual realm. Yes, lust is sexual objectification. You objectify someone in that lust. It's the lens, seeing someone through the lens of body parts, sexualized fantasy, rather than as a whole person that one cares about beyond the sexual realm. That is sexual lust. However, lust can mean a driving hunger for anything. Like a lust for power. We see people in our government that lust for power to the point where they're trying to push laws out that consolidate and and confirm that. And I'm not going to go down that road this morning. Boy, I'm tempted, though. But (laughs) it's a mess because of the lust that people have. Lust takes many, many shapes and forms. Simple principle, you won't lust for something that holds no attraction to you. I, I think about... Joseph with Potiphar's wife back in the Old Testament. You guys have been going through the, ladies have been going through the the life of Joseph. And and, and I think, you know, if there wasn't something in him that he found her very attractive, because evidently she was, it would have been a no-brainer. He could have said, forget it. But he wrestled. And he did the right thing. And it cost him dearly. Because sometimes the right thing costs us, doesn't it? It's a driving hunger for anything. Lust is a strong, powerful desire. One lusts for the things that one deeply craves. And folks, I know you're like me. We can all sit here with our Sunday faces on, but we deal with lust in many forms. That old nature, that body of sin in us just throws that thing up there and it's attractive. It might be an attitude of the heart. It might be a physical act. It might be uh, something that where you come against someone else. I, I mean, it, anything that tries that competes for the position that Christ has in your heart, that that competes for that place, is driven by lust. I mentioned last week in, in John's letter, he says. It's the things that, are, that define sin is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. That is the root of all sin. If you look at Eve in the garden, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's all there. You look at Jesus being driven by the spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those are the things that want to captivate us. Those are the things that this body of flesh throws up on the screen of my life and says, what are you going to do? In James chapter one, James gives a, a definition of the, the mechanism of lust in our lives. He says, no one is to say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted by evil. And he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So God is not the tempter here. We know who is. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's a product of the body of sin that that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 6. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. In other words, that lust is not in itself sin. Acting upon that lust... Is. When lust is conceived, when you give place to it, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Serious stuff. He's talking about those two principles. Remember, we see those two principles we looked at right here. The principle of, of sin and death and the principle of life and Righteousness. Now, this is free. I, I want to just comment on this for a minute. Naysayers use uh, James one thirteen to support the heretical stance that Jesus is not God. They say, well, it says right there, God cannot be tempted. And you're saying Jesus is God. Not so fast. <laughs> it actually supports the fact that he is. So the question then becomes, can God be tempted by evil? He says here, and it's true. No, he can't. He's God. Can a man be tempted by evil? Absolutely. That's what we're talking about this morning. We are tempted by evil. In Hebrews 4.15, the writer there, not saying it was Paul, says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Important distinction to understand here while Jesus had a dual nature fully man, fully God he could be tempted as a man (laughs) but he's also God because the lineage of Adam was broken at the virgin birth. That's the purpose of the virgin birth was to break the lineage of Adam so that he didn't inherit a sin nature. He didn't inherit a body of sin. So As a man, yeah, he was tempted, as we are. Yet without sin, he's God. Now, his temptations did not come from that nature. There were things that were put in front of him. If you study it out and you look at it, every time that Jesus was tempted, it was because Satan was putting something in front of him. So that's the distinction we can make there. The point is this is the battle that all of us, face. Every one of us. So the question becomes then, preacher man, how do we win this battle? Glad you came to church this morning. We're going to talk about that. First, I'm going to talk about how we don't. I've got some slides here. It's not by just saying no. Remember Nancy Reagan? Those of you that are, if you're under 40, forget it. But, um, (laughs) Nancy Reagan, back in the early 80s, had you know, a former first lady and all. She, she launched a campaign of just say no. And I remember I had, I had little kids, and, and, and that went on into the early 90s and all. It was like, I, I would talk to my kids and say, okay, so Nancy Reagan says the way that you're going to win this battle is by just say no. So you're at a party, and somebody passes, you know, whatever to you. And all of a sudden you're going to think i saw I saw a commercial no that's not that's lame It's not by just willing myself to say no, that temptation is going to keep coming at me. You look at the woke culture that we're living in today. there is absolutely no there's there's no way out for one thing. It's it's people walking around thinking that they're enlightened because it's a slang term that comes from that person thinking that they have some enlightenment. But it's the world. It's the world's best solution to people that do things wrong. And it's totally condemning. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness. there's There's no restoration. It's horrible. But it's man's best. And it figures. It's not by just saying no. Another thing is it's not by asceticism. And I thought this was kind of fun. (laughs) Got a guy here. He has an iron collar on because he is going to discipline himself to get rid of worldly pleasures and focus on thinking. That's what ascetics do. (laughs) This is a... A Buddhist monk is a good example of somebody who's practicing asceticism. And it's true. that The battle's in our minds. That is that is true. That part of it's true. But you can't bend reality in the way that an ascetic believes. That I can bend reality and get myself out of this box, this body of sin. That nature's still there. And it has not been dealt with in that case. this in that whole thing, it just tips into metaphysics. And it's cultic and weird. So... The last thing, and I, I just had to laugh, I was going around the internet looking for slides to put up. It's not by attending self help seminars. <laughs> and I don't care what Joel Osteen says, it's not about becoming a better you. God is not into improving you. He's saying here, you gotta die to sin. If you notice a common thread with all of these, as every one of them relies on human effort, folks. Human effort will never get you out of a posture of sin. Human effort will not win the battle. It's not the key at all. How shall? How, how do you think? How can we, as fallen humans, improve ourselves? How can a powerless sinner will himself to stop, stop sinning it, it doesn't make sense yet it's the world's best but the answer isn't complicated the gospel is not complicated it truly is and we truly do have a simple faith very simple Verse 13, he says, and don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the the dead. There's the choice. There's the choice. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. He's saying, you can present yourself as an instrument of unrighteousness to sin. There's that same two principles that he talks about at the end of chapter five. Or you can present yourself to God as being alive from the dead. He says, crucify, mortify. We'll talk about that in a moment. The old man. Verse 14, the result. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We'll get into that next week because there's a powerful section following this. But folks, to sum up, The things we're talking about when we talk about sin in our lives, it is not the devil made me do it. It's not let go and let God. It's not turn on the light. You know, we come up with popular phrases. I've been in the advertising business for 40 some years. And I loved that business, it was great in its day and all that. But it's not about catchy little phrases. If you're struggling with an area of sin, you've got to proactively make a decision. Because taglines, slogans, as good as they are in their place, and I understand them, I'm not making a beef about that, but they won't cut it when it comes to dealing with the old man, when it comes to dealing with the body of sin in our lives. Yes, we reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. We consider it a done deal and a settled account. That is absolutely essential As we move forward and we work our way through this. Have we died with Christ? Yes. Is our position with him perfect? Yes. Absolutely. This isn't working our way into good standing with God. We already have that. Positionally, we are seen as righteous. We are seen as holy. This is not about that. This is about living a life that counts in God's economy. Can we add anything to the work of Jesus, the person and the work of Christ? No. But to my members, my body, that's what we're dealing with here. And yeah, we're going to get a new body one day and and sin will no longer have a propensity. We won't have that propensity to sin in our lives because when we came to Christ, we were delivered from the penalty for sin, which is death. When we came to Christ, we were delivered from the power of sin positionally. And now he's working it out practically. In that day, we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. Until then, we live on a fallen planet. We, are, we, we pack around this old nature, this corpse. It's like dragging a corpse through life. And it rears up and tries to get control. Paul says that there's a battle; the flesh battles against the spirit, and, and and that this that and that battle will go on. For now, it's about walking in the spirit. If you if I allow sin to dominate me. I'm essentially denying all that Christ has done for me. So as I walk in the Spirit, the Bible says, and we're told here in Romans in chapter 8, that if I walk by the Spirit, I won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. The point in verse 13, he says, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of of righteousness to God. Because sin is the great enemy confronting us. When I present myself, I am putting myself at the disposal of a thing. So if I present myself as an instrument of unrighteousness, I'm putting myself at the disposal of that nature, that old nature of sin. I'm cooperating with my flesh, essentially. If I put myself at the disposal of God as being alive from the dead, as an instrument of righteousness, that's how he wants to use us. He wants to to have instruments that are given to him. And then he wants to use us in fruitful service to him. When I present myself, I'm, I'm putting myself at the disposal of whatever it is. We'll talk about that because we're going to talk about whether we're enslaved to God or we're enslaved to sin as we look further next week. But that's the choice that I make when I present myself as an instrument to sin, or I present myself as an instrument to righteousness. How do I take that out of the way? How do I deal with this in a practical manner? I'm going to give you the bottom line here. And I'm borrowing it from Romans 8.13. So we'll cover it again. The bottom line knock it down and kill it. Knock it down and kill it. We're talking about the body of sin. We're talking about sin, the temptation to sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Knock it down and kill it. Not not the body. But the deeds of the body, I'm not talking about suicide here, I'm talking about the deeds of the body, the the, the body of sin that we battle with in our lives. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, King James says, mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. In the original, this is, it's a very aggressive posture towards sin. When he says "you put to death," that's one word in the Greek, and it's thanatoo. And the definition is to cease completely from activity, with the implication of extreme measures taken to guarantee such a cessation. That's why I say, "Knock it down and kill it." I was kind of laughing getting out of the shower this morning. I was thinking about this part, and I was thinking, "Guys, did you ever, as a kid, did you ever watch roller derby? Did you ever watch wrestling?" I see, yeah, that's a head nod. Okay, good. I wasn't alone. Um, <laughs> wrestling, you got this big, beefy guy up there, and he's like, he's got this other guy. And yeah, we know that they practice and they rehearse that, but I'm just talking about, you know, it's like they had these violent moves. This guy, he'd pick the guy up over his head and he'd throw him to the, the deal and the mat would shake and you go, yay, and all that. He's saying, do that with sin. Do that with that temptation. Mortify it. You know what mortify means? It means strangle. He says, you get that thing and you just... Sorry, I got a little carried away there, but he says, that's how you do it. You have to have an aggressive posture. You have to make a choice. I have to make a choice. And I sometimes have to make a choice. As I've shared with you, I'm just being honest. Sometimes I have to choose 50 times a day. I remember a a guy that worked for me back in the early 90s and, and... he broke in. I gave him, I trusted him with a key to my office and my shops and all that. And we had a bunch of guys going out and working on billboards all over California. And this guy broke into my office one night, got into my desk, and got a hold of all of my rate sheets that I charged different clients. And then he lowered his price just a little lower and went out and essentially stole about $130,000, $140,000 a year worth of business. And it cost people their jobs. I'll tell you what, I wanted to get a hold of him. (laughs) I was not only hurt because God had shown me to go to the mat for this guy. He was an alcoholic and I had had grounds to fire him a number of times and, and the Lord told me no. But I wrestled with that. I wrestled with that. I wrestled with bitterness. I wrestled with being really angry. And I'll never forget a a Bible study. Listen to a Bible study on on David. King David, when Saul, who had been out to get him for years, Saul goes to a cave to cover his feet. You don't need me to tell you what that means. And David goes in and he cuts the corner of his robe. Saul gets finished with his business and is walking down the hill and David comes out with his piece of cloth and he says, Saul, I could have killed you. And Saul essentially said, why didn't you take my life when you had the opportunity to? And David said this. He said, the Lord will judge between thee and me. God didn't tell me to kill you. I remember exactly where I was on a road out in the middle of a bunch of rice fields that day. When I heard that, and I just began to weep. And in that moment, God delivered me from the bitterness that I had had. The Lord will judge between thee and me. If you're packing around bitterness this morning, you don't have to. Reckon it to be dead. Mortify, strangle, kill the deeds of the flesh. That body of sin, you're going to have to deal with it. I do. Every one of us does. If, we, if we're really honest and if you're making provision for it, ask God to forgive you for that. Allow him to cleanse you. Be on the side that Paul talks about here um, where he says uh, in verse uh, 13, he says, don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Choose God. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Choose righteousness. Choose to present yourself to God as being alive from the dead. And your members, that's that body of sin. The members means, mem- it means parts of the body. That's the Greek translation of that word members. It's talking about physical body. But more. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God essentially talking about being sold out. Wall to wall. If you're not sold out wall to wall for Jesus Christ this morning, you can fix that. If you've never come into a relationship with him, and perhaps this is the first time, perhaps you're catching this online, or you're here. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do that today, regardless of if it's for the first time, and if it's for the first time, just praying a simple prayer. God, I've lived my life away from you, and I see the value of living my life for you. Please forgive me for my sins. Cleanse me. And give me this, this life that we're talking about here. If that's what you're doing, pray that prayer. And then tell somebody, because especially if you're online. I I can't ask you to tell me unless you want to give me a call afterwards. But the point is, tell somebody. Jesus called people publicly, making a public proclamation of the choices, the decisions they've made. If you're struggling in an area of sin, if you have somebody that you really trust, I'm very careful about this. But if you have somebody that you really trust to be accountable to and accountable with, share it with them. Very often the power of sin in our lives is broken by getting it outside of us. Now, I want you to be careful because not everybody is trustworthy enough to take that and to handle that in a proper way. You don't want to share with somebody that's going to turn and say, (laughs) look at you, you don't want some condemnation thing coming out of it. But you do want to be able to be up front. I have a couple of people in my life that I am absolutely accountable with. I called my son the other day. Uh, one of our sons, Justin, I called him and said, son, I am struggling. And I shared some things I'm not going to share with you. but <laughs> But the point is, I just said, hey, you know, I'm wrestling with this. I need prayer. And man, he just launched and started praying. There's great value in having an accountability partner. Be careful, yes. Is is caution advised? Yes, it is. The Bible says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to man for he knows what's in man. So you be sure that that's a trustworthy person. But if you're wrestling, there is value. Take it to the Lord. Share it with someone who will lift you up, cover you in prayer. Very practical. If you're dealing with an area of sin, throw that guy to the mat. Get rid of it. Take an aggressive posture. That's the part. That's what we supply. And all of it, you know what the result of it is? I am being sanctified. I am being made more like my master and my Lord. I am being transformed from glory to glory, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. That's the work that God wants to actively do in my life. can't do it on my own. He empowers me through the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to a a very thorough examination of the the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit when we get to chapter 8. But understand, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is such that He will empower you. He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He, he, He leads us into all truth. And he glorifies Jesus. Those are the three main prongs of the ministry of the Spirit. Take those things to him. He's not going to beat you up. He died for those things. Take an aggressive stance against sin and you'll see victory. Based on the word of God, I guarantee you you will see victory in your life. You might have to practice it for a while. But know that he loves you, that you're seated in the heavenlies. You are already seen as holy in his eyes. And now, It's his job, it's his will, it's his work to work in your heart, to work in your life. Let's pray. Father, uh, these are just such powerful truths. These are wonderful truths that you give us in in this glorious book, in this letter to a church in a a city 2,000 years ago, and yet timeless in their application. Lord, teach us to apply your truths to our lives. Teach us what it is, Lord, to walk in holiness. Teach us what it is to understand that we're in process, but that doesn't include yielding to sin. It includes getting rid of it. It includes throwing it to the mat. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and and for your love that's poured out on our lives daily, every moment. Thank you that you love us with a love that we don't quite understand, but we'll sure take all that we can get. We praise you this morning, and as we continue to worship you, Lord, we worship you now in spirit and in truth, and pray that you would be glorified by it, in Jesus' name, amen.